Just a quick content warning, listeners. On this episode, we're going to be discussing eating disorders and diets. If that's not a topic you're ready to listen to, skip this one and come back. We get it. If you've ever heard someone reference their fear foods, you've probably known someone who lived on diets or who has gone through eating disorder recovery. For me, a fear food was carbs, specifically bread. I came of age when Atkins was in vogue and South Beach was a fast follow. And I remember not fully comprehending what exactly a carbohydrate was in high school, but avoiding them nonetheless in their most visible forms, bread and pizza. I do remember a gentleman by the name of Sean Fish saying a sentence that sent me down an AOL rabbit hole. You think orange juice isn't a carb? It is in fact a carb listener. And that of course followed me to college where I discovered the salad bar at my dining hall and held on to that as healthy and safe. In today's interview, I talked to Judith Matz, a therapist, author, and speaker who helps people end the cycle of diets and identify behavior colored by diet culture. She also trains other clinicians in that. And she mentioned something that stood out to me. When you make food off limits, it glitters. Never has a concept resonated so much with me as that thought. I remember a night I was out drinking in college during a really restrictive phase and on my walk home from the bars to my apartment, three blocks by the way, I stopped to buy and eat three separate sandwiches. This is when Jimmy John's had clones popping up all over Madison, Wisconsin, and I stopped at all of them. The result was pain. (laughs) This is Gina Anderson Cohen, by the way, founder and CEO of A Sweat Life, and today I eat bread and pasta because they're delicious. We are in the middle of a month of episodes of the We Got Goals podcast that dive deep into diet culture. And on this week's episode, we got into Judith Matz's work, as well as the actual definition of what diets are and what diet culture is. It's easy though, to try to skirt defining your relationship with diets. And as I've been reading anti-diet books in public this month, I've heard from a lot of people about their systems that aren't quote diets, their systems of do's and don'ts. But you'll hear Judith define a diet as anytime you make a change in how you eat for the purpose of weight loss. And you'll also hear her define diet culture, which might as well be, well, it's in the air, But for the purpose of this conversation, it's a belief that thinness is a moral virtue and that thinness is health. Therefore, it's worth doing anything to achieve that status. And when you get to that status, you'll be happier and healthier. So as we dive deeper, I am convinced that diet culture is basically the matrix. Our minds are so occupied with the illusion in front of us that if we just lose weight, we will have the life of our dreams. We are so occupied, in fact, that we're willing to ignore the fact you'll hear from several experts this month on diets and diet culture that diets simply do not work. As Matt puts it, there's only a three to 5% chance that a diet will work. And there isn't a single program or plan that has the research to support sustained weight loss over two to five years. And that's why Matt's dedicated her professional life to recovery from disordered eating and diet culture, as well as authoring the books, The Diet Survivor's Handbook, Beyond a Shadow of a Diet, as well as two card decks that are meant to make anti-diet and body-positive lifestyle more accessible. In terms of our deep dive, think of this episode as an intro to what diet culture is and as a 101 on how to get out of it. Here is my interview with Judith Matz. Judith 
Judith Matz. Thank you so much for joining me here today on We Got Goals. I am so excited to speak with you, but before we get into all this, can you please talk to me about your background and how you came to create um, the cards that you have today and become just known for uh, body positivity and um, the work you're doing now? Sure, Jean. And first, thanks so much for having me here today. Um, I'm a, a clinical social worker. I'm a therapist. And very early in my career, I got training in eating disorders as part of a postgraduate program. And while I was getting that training, I started a small private practice. And I also started working with um, a medically supervised weight loss program called OptiFast. Some of you might remember it from the 1980s, early 1990s. You might remember Oprah coming on her TV show and pulling this red wagon full of the fat she lost across the stage. So during this time, I was helping people um, with behavioral changes. They were part of a six-month program and, and there was a group. And, you know, they were things like low-fat eating and exercise and not eating in front of the TV and, you know, what gets considered to be a lifestyle change. Um, and during this time, what I saw is that people lost a lot of weight but the vast majority, and now we know it's not surprising, gained it back. But at the time, not everybody did. And the, what I saw, because I continued to work with them in an ongoing group, was that in order to keep the weight off, they were preoccupied with food and weight, constantly weighing and measuring food. If they went to a party and there were foods they didn't plan for, they were in a panic. Some were over-exercising. They had to write down everything they ate. And I thought, if this is what I'm helping people to do, to be a, you know, be obsessed with food and weight, I'm not sure I want to have any part of this. This, and around that time, I read a book called um, "Overcoming Overeating," which was actually one of the first non-diet books. And when I read it, it not only resonated with my professional experience. They were talking about how it was actually the deprivation of diets that was a major cause in triggering um, out of control eating, eating to discomfort. But it also resonated with my own personal experience. I started dieting in high school um, because I was afraid of getting fat and because that's what the girls I knew did. It was a way to be connected. And so, you know, for the first time, I started to do things like eat plain yogurt that I hated. I'd add a little sweet and low to try to make it taste better. Um, I would skip meals. And during this time, as I was dieting and restricting, I started to binge for the first time. So I would find myself in my dorm eating all the desserts put out later at night or, you know, coming home from school one day and eating a whole can of pink frosting. Um, and so, so this was my own experience. And what got me out of it, I, I was really fortunate to get out of this very early in my life. I happened to have this summer where I moved to um, Boston just to have just wanted to live somewhere else before I settled down to what I considered my real life in Chicago. And I had, I was in a tiny little studio with no scale, no mirror. And I was um, working as a server at a, a sea, well-known seafood restaurant where food was plentiful. And so I was just tired enough of dieting that I said, screw it. I'm taking the, <laughs> taking the summer off. I'll deal with it when I get back to Chicago. And when I came back, I realized all of my binging had stopped that it was, and it, it, and I, it, it struck me. I had an aha moment that it was actually the deprivation of diets that was um, triggering my overeating. And so I made myself a promise. And this is when I was in my early twenties, that if I ever thought there was something I shouldn't eat because it was too fattening, 
I would have it to remind myself that I could, I could have it. And I guess I just want to add to that, to my story that I was never what gets called, you know, I was never somebody who used food for emotional reasons. And so we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little later today. Mm-hmm. And I was also fortunate to grow up with a mom that didn't diet and that food was plentiful in our home. So I was really returning back to the way of eating um, I had grown up with. So as I had these aha moments, both professionally and personally, I made a decision. That's the direction I would go in my clinical work. And I have never looked back. It is wonderful work to witness people who have struggled for years, even decades with chronic dieting, finally be able to make peace with food. And speaking of making peace with food, you created the Making Peace with Food card deck um, to help folks do just that. Can you talk about what what, uh, those of us who buy them uh, will find in the card deck? Sure, I'd love to. Um, So the Making Peace with Food card deck was a collaboration between myself and Christy Harrison, who is the host of the Food Psych podcast. And she's a dietitian and I'm a therapist. So it was a good collaboration because we could come at it from both angles. And the card deck is divided into seven sections. And each card has um, sort of a lesson And then it has um, an actual activity to do. We developed the Making Peace with Food card deck so that people would have these strategies um, to end chronic dieting and rediscover pleasure in eating. And, you know, there's there's plenty of books out there. I have a couple of books out that maybe I'll talk about later. But sometimes people don't want to sit down and read a whole, whole book. Or sometimes it's nice to just be able to pull out one card and focus on that. And they're meant, you know, you can go through them consecutively, but you don't have to. So um, the categories, let me just tell you what they are. Um, letting go of the diet mindset. And I'll just, I'll just say a little bit about each one. So the diet mindset has to do things with like, I'm being good today. I'm being bad today. It's a cheap day. All the things that are really normative in this culture. We hear people say them all the time and we don't give it a second thought because we're so used to it. But that kind of thinking actually fuels the diet cycle. So in, in our letting go of um, the diet mindset, we even ask things like, what would your life be like if you weren't focused on diets? You know, I think we have one an activity around that. We look at the diet cycle that includes things like, um, you know, it always starts out with negative thoughts. Nobody ever wakes up in the morning and says, boy, I look terrific. I feel so great. I'm going to start a diet, right? Instead, it's, uh, you know, my clothes are too tight. I'm unhealthy. Um, my stomach sticks out. And all of these um, thoughts fuel a diet. And, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of plans to choose from. People go for low cal, low, um, low carb, low fat. What's popular these days? Um, intermittent keto. 30, <laughs> absolutely keto. And the gluten-free and the list goes on. And the thing about this, Gina, is that they all work in the short run, right? Mm. And so, you know, somebody goes on their diet and the weight starts to come off and they start to get compliments like, oh my gosh, you look so great. I'm so proud of you. You're taking such good care of yourself. So you have to wonder, you know, if it feels so good. And again, when people start their diet, they feel like I'm in control. It's like a high, right? Mm -hmm. So if it feels so good, why is it that the vast majority of people will regain the weight? Um, So we deal with all of that in the cards. 
Um, and, and I'll just make a comment about the why for your listeners in case they're wondering. You know, part of it is psychological deprivation. We, we mm-hmm. want what we can't have. So if I say to you, I'll do this with you, Gina, starting tomorrow, you can never have ice cream again. What are you going to do tonight? All I would think about is ice cream, first of all, and I would eat all the ice cream I could find. Yeah. And that's exact. That's a natural reaction. You know, it's not about willpower or anything. We, it, it's a natural reaction to deprivation. But physiologically, there's a lot that happens too, where your body, you know, its job is to keep you alive. And when you start to undereat and undernourish your body, there's all kinds of things that happen where your metabolism gets lowered, your body holds on to every calorie, makes the most of it, it gets better at storing fat for the future famine. So what we know is that the more people diet, the higher their weights are over time. And again, there's nothing wrong with being a higher weight in general, but it's just important to understand that physiologically diets interrupt with a person's natural set point. Mm-hmm. Um, so sooner or later, because of the physio, and, and I can go deep in, in, in books I've written, I go deeper into the physiological deprivation, but just know that the psychological and physiological deprivation eventually send out these signals that compel almost everybody um, to break out of the restrictions. And when they do, they're not going, you know, you're not going for vegetables and fruit, right? Or salads, you're going for the very foods that have been off limits. So mm. the ice cream or the cake or candy or chips or pizza. And what I think is the most insidious part of this whole process is the shame people end up feeling. Because first, you know, there's shame about their body not conforming to what the culture says your body size is supposed to be. And so you do what you're supposed to do, which is follow any one of these plans. And the plans are sounding more scientific these days, or the plans often fall under wellness. Oh, you know, people say, I know diets don't work. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle. But anytime, anytime you are manipulating food, restricting food, or making a change in how you eat for the purpose of weight loss, it is a diet and it's subject to the same physiological and psychological pitfalls that I just mentioned. And so that shame, um, you know, is, is heartbreaking for people. All those compliments they were getting before, now there's silence and the negative thoughts start and the whole cycle begins again. So we even have a card about that um, where you make a history, you know, you make a timeline. Of, of your diets and kind of look at those patterns. Um, so the diet mindset has a bunch of cards that deal with that. Then we go to, let's get these in order, learning attuned eating. So attuned eating is also known as intuitive eating. And that has to do in the most general way with reconnecting to your body and learning to trust it when it comes to food. So when you're following a diet plan or a wellness plan, the plan is telling you when, what, and how much to eat. Mm-hmm. But with a tuned or intuitive eating, you're, you're deciding from the inside out. So one of the first questions is, am I hungry? Right? And so what does physiological hunger feel like? Because um, so often, again, people are eating because something looks good or people are overriding their hunger signals because they don't want to gain weight or they're trying not to eat. So a lot of times when I ask people, you know, what does hunger feel like to you? How do you know when you're physically hunger? They'll say things like I get a headache or I get crabby or hangry um, or I get, you know, feel weak or it's hard to concentrate. Those are all signs that somebody has waited too long. Too long. Comfortable, right? 
hunger shouldn't be uncomfortable. Um, and think about what happens when you wait too long. Everything sounds good. You feel desperate. And so you'll mm -hmm. eat whatever's available and you're likely to eat more of it than you need. So I, I think about hunger as like a gnawing or empty feeling. And it can take practice to reconnect. Again, we have some cards about just rediscovering hunger. Um, but the idea is that when you're somewhat hungry or hungry, it means you need to eat. And I so often find in my clinical work, you know, I, I, I see clients in counseling who have been chronic dieters that um, often they, they'll tell me that they eat throughout the day. Like they'll have a, you know, health, quote, healthy breakfast of some yogurt and fruit and lunch. They'll have salad and they'll assure me that they put some protein, like some, you know, chicken in it. Um, and then they have their healthy dinner, what they call a healthy dinner of like some fish and some vegetables. Sure. Those are all healthful foods, but it's not enough food for your body throughout the day. And then they find themselves binging in the evening and don't know why, or think it's emotional reasons. Mm -hmm. But so often what's causing some of that later in the day, um, out of control eating is not is under eating during the day. So sometimes just adding, you know, rounding out meals more, adding carbs. Yes, carbs are good to eat. <laughs> Your brain needs carbs. You'll feel better with carbs. Actually, will help people reduce the binging that can occur later in the day. Okay. So then the next question is: If you're hungry, what should you eat? And again, when you when you've had you know years of following plans. Um, you have foods divided into good and bad or how many points they're worth or how many calories. And it takes time to undo that thinking. But um, again, Gina, you're going to be, since I have you with me, I'm going to use you on this one. Think of a time that you were hungry and a recent time if possible, and you got exactly what you were hungry for. So you were hungry and you got exactly what you were hungry for. How did that feel? Oh my God, like electricity, you know, you, you get the food that exactly the food you're craving and it's like, it connects with something on your tongue. Yeah. Right. So it feels, you said like electricity and it feels really yeah. satisfying, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had one client who used to describe it as most excellent. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was applesauce. Like I was craving applesauce. I got the applesauce. It was cold. It was delicious. And it was like electric. Okay. Great. <laughs> but now let's do the opposite. Think of a time you were hungry, but for whatever reason, doesn't matter what it was. You couldn't afford it. It wasn't available. Dying mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you didn't get it, and you ate something else. How did that feel? Uh, not satisfying. <laughs> you just keep looking. You just keep looking for that food. That's really an important point. So it's right. It's like disappointing. You don't hit the mm -hmm. spot, right? It's yeah. So, and and I think what you said is important that you keep looking. So like you know, I, I often use the example because this happens so often of somebody who's having a pizza party, but they're being quote good, so they only eat the salad. Mm. Right, <laughs> And you can get full, you can get really full on salad, but if it's not what you're really hungry for, you're, you don't get satisfied. And so what happens when people leave, right? The party, they end up eating the pizza anyway. And, you know, they would have been better off having the pizza they were hungry for. Maybe they wanted some salad with it. So we call that making the match. And again, we have cards in the deck about how to start doing that, how to start making the match, including how to start exposing yourself to some of your fear foods. So I won't mm. go into that, but it's in the deck, how to start out with, you know, very slowly with the foods that you're afraid if I bring it in, I won't stop eating. Um, and then the next question is how much? So if there's no signal, I always like to say, if there's no signal to start, there's no signal to stop. If you're not hungry when you start, there's nothing to turn off. But if you start eating when you're hungry, 
at some point you'll feel some sense of, and, and you're making a match, you're eating the food that's, uh, or, or foods, I should say, because it's often more than one thing that really satisfy you. There's a feeling of satiation and that's mm-hmm. the key to stopping. Everybody gets to decide how full they want to feel. So um, in the deck, we have a, hun- a hunger scout. And so it looks at, you know, a five is just neutral, right? Kind of, you're not hungry, you're not full. And so we talked about hunger already. So a four would be somewhat hungry, a three would be hungry, a two would be very hungry, and a one would be ravenous. On the other end, a six would be somewhat full, a seven would be full, an eight would be very full, and a nine would be stuffed. So you always get to decide, how do I want to feel when I'm done Mm -hmm. eating? And how much do I think would take take, um, to get me there? One of the keys in all of this is permission to, you know, to eat without judgment. So if you're telling yourself, I'll just go back to the pizza. If you're telling yourself pizza's bad and I'm eating it now, but starting Monday, it's gone again. It, it, it's human nature then to get as much as you can right now. But if you say it's just pizza, when I'm hungry for pizza, it's great. And if I stop now and I want it later today or tomorrow or next week, I can have it again. It becomes safe to stop. And that's really key in being able to stop is knowing the foods won't go away. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the basics of the attuned eating. I always emphasize that you don't want to turn this into a new diet called the stomach hunger diet, where I can only eat when I'm hungry and I have to stop the minute I'm full. It's there's, there's more um, nuance to it than that, but these are the basics. Okay. Then our next um, section is on cultivating mindfulness. But we were just talking about fullness. And one of the things that often happens for people who are struggling with chronic dieting is, you know, certain foods are off limits. So, you know, I've got, I I bake cookies for my kids, but I'm not allowed to have them. So when I walk by the counter, I just take one bite. Then I take a little more, a little more, because somehow it doesn't count if they're little bites. But before the person knows it, they've eaten a bunch of it it would be better to sit down and pay attention to the experience. Enjoy the flavors. I always love the word to savor the food. Mm. Yeah, to savor. So we go through several mindfulness exercises, and then we have a section on finding self-compassion. And this is key for people who are struggling um, with chronic dieting because, for example, you know, if you if you decide come New Year's Day that you are going to be on a diet and you've gone along for a few weeks and you've stuck to your diet and you're feeling really good. And then the day comes where you find yourself, you know, you're at a party and there's some foods that look good or just at home or, what, or whatever it might be. But you find yourself um, breaking through your food restrictions. What happens? Usually people start to yell at themselves call themselves names, get very self-critical. I can't believe I'm doing this. What's the matter with me? I have no willpower. So we want people to start to find self-compassion. If you're on this journey to make peace with food, just keep in mind it takes time, right? Like you are unlearning years and years of eating patterns. And so it's going to take time to begin to tune into hunger, to figure out what you're hungry for, to figure out when to stop. And so instead of yelling at yourself, um, because I want you to think about what happens when somebody breaks through a diet, here's what they do. Well, I've already eaten the cookie, so I might as well, right, have 
the brownies or the ice cream or what or or finish the box of cookies because starting tomorrow or Monday, right? I can't have them anymore. Or they punish themselves the next day. Right. So um I ate too much yesterday. So today I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to eat all day. I'm going to eat very little. And that just sets you up again for the same cycle of undernourishing your body. So one of the things people can learn to do with self-compassion is to say, oops, I ate, you know, I ate more than I meant to, and I feel uncomfortable. I'll do my best to wait until I'm hungry again. You hear how gentle that sounds. Mm-hmm. So those are some ideas around self-compassion. Um, so now we're going to talk about emotional eating, um, tuning into your emotions. So I guess I want to start by saying, in general, eating is an emotional experience. You know, it's a way we connect with people over celebrations, over, over religious holidays um, that have just, you know, I think by the time this comes out in January, everybody will have probably had some holiday, you know, if you're religious at all, to celebrate. And that's a good thing. You know, it's it's the way we're fed as, as children. It gives us a sense of safety, sense of soothing. The issue is more when a person relies on, on eating is their major way to deal with stress. So if I were to ask people, you know, what are some of the emotions that lead you to eat. People might say, I eat when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I'm lonely, when I'm bored. Um, and the list goes, and when I'm happy, like every feeling can be, somebody can say, that's why I eat. But I want, I want you to keep in mind that it's not the feeling in and of itself. It's not the sadness or the loneliness. It's the inability to be with, hold that feeling, to tolerate that feeling. Mm. Okay? So again, as I talk about emotional eating, I always want to say that before somebody even tries to explore emotional eating, it's really key to end the deprivation-driven eating that I was talking about earlier. What sometimes we call it rebound eating, eating in response to deprivation. There's no way to tell when you're um, eating, you know, the chocolate or the M and M's or whatever it might be, if it's because of emotional reasons or deprivation if you're in diet mode. So you really mm-hmm. have to build that internal structure first of the attuned or intuitive eating. But at that point, you might look at the emotional eating. And you know what I think about is, um, and this gets back to the compassion, in the beginning, what's really helpful to do is say, I'm reaching for food. Am I hungry? If the answer is yes, terrific. You know, I need to eat. If the answer is no, at the beginning, as you're trying to undo the diet mindset, you might say, I look forward to the day, you know, I'm not hungry, but I, I, and I look forward to the day I no longer need to turn to food. Mm-hmm. But as the person, as you move along and you've been building up this internal structure where you're eating when you're hungry, making these good matches and able to, you know, stop at the place you want to be, the level of fullness. Um, maybe now 50, 60, 70% of your eating, you're in a much stronger position to look at the percent that might be this emotional eating. And so again, we've got cards that teach you how to do this. I'm reaching for food and I'm not hungry. What would I think about or feel? Or what am I really hungry for right now? I'm hungry for connection. I'm hungry for stimulation. Mm-hmm. And so we take you through some of the some activities to help you build new strategies, new ways. Um, because what I'm, what I'm starting to say, I think I didn't quite finish this thought before, is that 
it's not the feeling, the anger or the sadness. Like, you know, I said, it's the inability to stay with the feeling. So what the food actually does then, people will say, it comforts me, it calms me, it soothes me, it distracts me, it numbs me. So what, what, what I help people do in my individual work is work on other ways to soothe themselves in those times of distress. Mm -hmm. And that includes, that takes us back to the mindfulness section where we teach like a mindfulness practice. Um, But there's other ways as well. Okay. And then we have nourishing your body. So then we're getting into more about, um, let's see, I'm going to, I'm going to just randomly look for one of my nourishing cards and I will give you an example. So bear with me one minute. Okay. Okay. So this one reads, when it comes to nutrition, focus, focus on foods you want to add rather than foods, rather than on taking away foods. And I think that's so important because again, in diet culture, it's always about, I can't have this. I can't have that. We want to end that. Everything is, you have permission to eat everything. And it's fine to add some foods because you think that they will provide you good nutrition. So the activity we say, keep in mind that all foods fit, keeping in mind that all foods fit, decide if you want to include some types of food for their nutritional value. For example, it's helpful for me to include foods with, and our examples are fiber or vegetables for digestion, or it's helpful to me to include foods with carbohydrates, protein for energy. I can add these foods in a flexible way without having to cut out. And then they can, you can name a food that may be tempting to cut out, but you don't have to. So we have cards like that. Um, we also address things like health concerns. And obviously that's a big one because somebody might say, well, you know, I have high cholesterol or I have diabetes. Are you just saying I should eat anything? Of course not. Of course, we're not saying that. Um, part of making a match is the food tastes good and it feels good in your body, but also that it supports your health. And so, for example, if you have high cholesterol and you're concerned about saturated fats and it's a warm summer night and you want something cold and sweet, Um, maybe instead of ice cream, you decide to have some sorbet, which gives you that cold, sweet feeling without the saturated fat. For people who are diabetic, um, there's, it's important, you know, to work with a dietitian who uses an anti-diet approach. And what happens then is that you can learn how to test your blood sugar and find out how foods affect you. So you'll learn that like, if I have something sweet and I go for a walk, it impacts me differently than if I have something sweet and and I'm sedentary, just watching TV. And so people with diabetes learn um, that I've worked with, and, and they've also worked with, you know, collaborated with a dietitian, that there's no foods that are off limit, but they learn how they affect their body. So instead of just being handed a sheet that says, don't eat this or only eat this way, they feel much more in charge of how they feed themselves and have a much better um, and successful experience. Our last category is reclaiming your life. Mm. So let me, I'm going to give you a few examples because these are all really, I mean, all the cards I think are important, but um, <laughs> I want to include some of these. So first of all, um, you have the right to decide how much and what types of food nourish you. And I think that's important because rejecting diets um, isn't exactly the mainstream yet. It's much more talked about these days. There's a lot more information about body positivity and about 
intuitive eating, but that doesn't mean that you know people who have embraced that. And so you might find yourself sitting at a family, you know, at the table with your family, and there's a lot of diet talk. Hey, have you tried this? You know, why don't you try this new diet? Or I really should lose weight, or I'm worried about your health because of your weight. And so we just talk about if there's someone in your life interfering with your journey to make peace with food, set boundaries to protect yourself as best you can. And then we give it a couple examples. And 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 I'll just give you one. I know you think you're being helpful, but I have found for myself that diet talk is counterproductive. We also do some talking about, you know, the fact that people do come in all shapes and sizes. And as you make peace with food, your body will land where it's meant, meant to be. And so we, we, um, we invite you to reject any weight stigma that you experienced in your life. And I think that's really important to just note, like, there's a lot you can do around body positivity. And that's a whole different card deck. I have two card decks. And the body positivity card deck complements this one and has a lot of ways to, again, cultivate self-care without focusing on the number on the scale and compassion and mindfulness and, and some body image activities. But all the body image activities and feeling good about your body in the world, if you're higher weight, don't, don't erase the fact that when you walk out in the world, there's a lot of weight stigma out there. So we just want you to use what we call the three R's. Um, remind yourself that your weight is a result of complex factors like genetics, yo-yo dieting, medications, certain health conditions. Reject weight stigma rather than internalizing it. And repeat, I deserve to be treated with respect at any size. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I would just say, I'm trying to find the, there's a, there's a, uh, a card with this, but you know, there's a couple of places where we invite you in different ways to think about what would your life be like without the diet mindset? What would your life be like if you were at peace with food and felt at home with your body? What kind of time and energy would that free up for you? So those are the messages in general through the card decks I have, through my book, um, The Diet Survivor's Handbook. There's a book I have for mental health professionals beyond a shadow of a diet. All of those resources ultimately are to help people feel at peace in their bodies, at peace with food, and to reject weight stigma. And all of us have a role in that, right? by not participating in diet conversations or, or making, you know, diet comments, not complimenting people on body size. Um, we can all be part of that change. Yeah. I, I think that's so important. And as you're, as you're talking, actually, um, it reminded me of something that Kristen, who's our chief content officer at a sweat life, um, did years ago with me. I remember, um, I, I was still learning, unlearning diet culture, learning all of this. And I complimented her on how skinny she looked. And about two days later, um, she set a clear boundary with me and asked me not to compliment her on her size. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was like, Oh, (laughs) and then we went down this whole journey together where um, she wrote an article that was about how to compliment a woman, not (laughs) how skinny she is. So it was a a dramatic unlearning. That's terrific. And I think it's such a hard one because, again, it's so normative in our culture. And, you know, it's reminding me I was doing I do um, a lot of full day trainings for therapists. And so I was talking about this not complimenting. And somebody wrote in the chat, one of the therapists, I've lost a lot of weight and I want to be complimented. 
<laughs> and so that somebody said, well, congratulations. So even as I'm trying to teach therapists to unlearn it, somebody's saying, I still want the compliments. And, and it's under, like that's understandable too, because they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're losing weight. They're feeling good. They haven't gotten to the point where the weight's coming back, right? Which is unfortunately, even as, even if we can wish people well, likely to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to talk about what to do in that situation. Um, you're, what was her name, Kristen? Kristen, yeah, Kristen. Yeah. On the so that, that's awesome that she was not only, you know, uh, so I, I know I'm going a couple different directions. Not only was she able, like, I'll teach people how to deflect it, like to say, you know, um, you know, I no longer um, focus on my body size, but I'm feeling really good. Thank you. You know, so even mm-hmm. to just deflect it, but it depends on the relationship with the person and being able to set a boundary like, like Kristen did is um, wonderful. And you were able to receive it, which is also, and learn from it, which is also so important. Um, if you, so the best thing to do is not make compliments, but you have somebody, my sister was just in this situation. Look, I lost all this weight. You know, my sister said, don't you know what I do? She's my co-author for the two <laughs> books. Yeah. <laughs> but I think also what you can do is say, I, I hear how good you're feeling. So without being, I love that. Okay, I hear you're feeling good about it. I just want you to know, I care. I cared about you before. I care about you now, no matter what your size, you know, you're important to me. So there's ways that you cannot be dismissive and still not be complicit. It, and it's tricky. And I think it helps like for all of us to just sort of visualize what would I do in that situation? Cause you can be taken so off guard. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Worst case diet scenario planning. <laughs> Right. So one one thing we've talked about a bit, but I I'd love for you to define it here is what is diet culture? <laughs> is it just diets or is it no in the no, air? No, yeah, it's in the air for sure. It's much bigger than diets. It's a belief that thinness is a moral virtue, thinness equals health. And therefore, it's worth doing just about anything to achieve that status. Mm-hmm. And that when you achieve that status, your life will be better. You'll be happier. You'll be sexy, attractive, successful, healthy. Everything good will come to you. And it's so pervasive that people are swimming in it and don't realize it. So, so I, I mean, I think that's a very simple way to put it, but yeah. Yeah, it's bigger than the diet itself. It's it's honestly the way you describe it that's super helpful, and it's honestly the most um, American, <laughs> the most American way to think about weight because it's it's that sort of striving. Like if I just blank, I will be happy. If I just blank, I will be happy. That's how we talk about it. Um, I don't know. I don't think you've read it, but in the we have these few short chapters in. Um, the diet survivor's handbook and then these mm-hmm. 60 lessons, but it, right. It's the American, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps with enough energy and hard work. You can accomplish anything. And it just is, it dismisses the physiological reality of, of weight. We're taught that it's calories in and out, but that's a myth. Body size is, you know, weight regulation is beyond our conscious control and it's not a matter of willpower and so what ends up happening is people blame themselves, right? And that's why our, our tagline for that book is you haven't failed your diet, your diet has failed you. Because if 
you, you have to wonder, like if nine, upwards of 95 to 97% of people who go on a diet gain the weight back and one third to two thirds end up higher than their pre-diet weight. So if it were just individual, you would never see statistics like that. Um, and so I, I'll give this example, like, you know, for um, if you were somebody who wanted to go on birth control and your gynecologist said, here's birth control with a three to 5% chance of working, would you take it? <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's what's happening with diets. And again, I don't care how scientific they sound. There's not a single program or plan that has the research to support it over a two to five year period. So every diet will show results in those first months up to a year. And that's when we start to see weight regain go up much more quickly. Yeah. And I I heard you, I, I mean, as you were talking through the card deck, and I haven't read the Diet Survivor's Handbook yet, but I'm going to before this episode airs. Um, so I'll, I'll make sure that I pull some notes out in my intro because honestly, everyone's surviving from diets. I've been on everything. South Beach, <laughs> uh, what I did the raw diet after I came back from a study abroad program. That was very expensive to be on in college, by the way. Um, so every, so everyone's kind of coming back from that and the, the amount of food I've wasted and thrown away and um, I just want to eat. Right. The time, the energy, the expense yeah. versus just being at peace with food. So think just in the most basic way, food should be a source of um, nourishment and satisfaction. And it's a shame that so many people feel such angst about eating. And then we also know sometimes that turns into more serious eating disorders. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, um, you mentioned your own mom and sort of not being on a diet and cooking at home and, and that joy you experienced there. Not everyone has that experience. In fact, a lot of people do not have that experience. So this trauma can be often generational. It's tough. It's handed down. You're, you're so right about that. And it's actually gotten worse over time. You know, I'm, when I grew up, diets weren't as in vogue as they are now. And parents often with the best intentions are just misguided. I'm only going to have my kids eat quote healthy foods, teaching them that certain foods are bad. And then kids go off to college and they're exposed to everything. And so I think, you know, what's so key is having a healthy relationship with food versus only eating healthy foods. So knowing how to eat all kinds of foods. And, you know, when you, when you say certain foods are bad or when, when parents are restricting them, they glitter, right? Mm-hmm. Like the very foods I'll bet when you were on, a, you know, on the diets you're talking about, the foods that, that, you, that were off limits, they, they glittered. Mm-hmm. And then pizza. pizza, and then you're set up to eat it. I have one client where, that I'm working with now where her mom, um, you know, everything was restricted growing up. It was only healthy foods, but her mom would sometimes bring in something and binge and then ask her daughter to hide the food for her. So you can hear how it was just being taught and handed down. But but I but she's been exposed to intuitive eating now. And fortunately, very young, you know, I, I love catching people before they've had decades of this and really has ended the binging and is really at peace with food. So, you know, it you can undo those experiences for for people, I guess I want to add this in there. I mentioned emotional eating. So for people where it's more deprivation driven, you know, solving that again can take time. But there, there are also people that might be listening today who really do meet the criteria for binge eating disorder, where there's mm-hmm. out of control eating multiple times a week. And sometimes for people with binge eating disorder, 
food was a way you mentioned trauma and food was a way to, to, to um, deal with trauma at young ages. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to say that's not, that's a good thing that you had a strategy. And when you, when you ter- used food as the kind of the stable thing in your life, something you could rely on to help numb you or soothe you in times of real distress it gets woven into the brain in a certain way. So the goal should never be about weight loss or about dieting. It's really about working on healing the trauma and working with somebody who also understands an anti-diet approach because sometimes even trauma therapists don't understand the importance of body acceptance and weight stigma and all the things that get wrapped into this. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit okay, of a see- deeper place to go, yeah. Yeah. And and you talked about an anti-diet approach. Um, and I know you also um, teach health at every size when you work with other licensed clinical psychologists and um, other clinicians. So can you, can you talk a bit about those two things and how they work hand in hand, health at every size and anti-diet? Okay. So really what I've been talking about this whole time is an anti-diet approach. So I think mm-hmm. I, I won't go back over that. But health at every size, I've been alluding to it without naming it. So thanks for naming it. Health at every size is a framework that helps people. There's there's just different dimensions to it. So I'm trying to think how I want to come at it. It has five principles. And two of the principles are related. One is related to the kind of eating I've been describing today. And there's also one about joyful movement. Um, and so in general, when I work with people around this, yes, since we're talking to you, of course, I should be talking about the movement. Um, and I'm using the word movement instead of exercise interchangeably, just because sometimes exercise is triggering for people because it's so hooked into weight loss, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it can be punishment for eating too much um, or it's reward, you know, I, I, I exercise, so now I deserve a reward. So I really teach people to unhook physical activity from diet mindset. And then I ask, so, you know, if, if your weight weren't going to change, if you were physically active, is there any reason you would still exercise? Sometimes people hesitate, but pretty quickly they get to, yes, I want the endurance. I want to be flexible. I want to be strong. I want to be able to sit on the floor and play with my grandchildren. It's social. Right. I, I like the connection. And, and often people can say, oh, I love to dance or, I, you know, um, I love to be in nature, walking in nature. So helping people reconnect. So those are two of the principles that come out of health at every size. But those are much more individually focused. And health at every size is really more of a social justice movement mm-hmm. um, to really promote the end of weight stigma to make sure people of all sizes um, those at higher weights have access to treatment um, strategies that their thinner counterparts get. Because what we see a lot of is doctors telling people at higher weights, just lose weight. When first of all, there's no reliable, sustainable way to do it. And they're often not getting the same treatment that somebody thinner might, which is you need physical therapy, or this medication will help, or you know, exercise helps lower cholesterol, whatever it might be. Um, so we want to try to to help people get access, and we also want to make sure that we want to try to change some of the systems that are oppressive toward people at higher weights. Health at every size is concerned not only with people at higher weights, but the intersection of other marginalized populations. So, person of you know people who are black or a person of color or somebody who's LGBTQ, etc., um, somebody who's disabled. 
all of those other identities intersect with higher weight and create more oppression for that person. So health at every size comes at these issues um, at all of these different levels to create a world that treats people in all bodies, no matter what your body, with respect. Uh, I could talk to you all day. I have a couple more follow-ups and then I will make sure we get you out of here on time. Um, so That's fine. I, okay. I, I'm here as long as you, as long as you're Okay. okay. Uh, forever. <laughs> the answer. So you work with folks who have been on diets, who have experienced disordered eating, and there's a member of a sweat life's community who's extremely vocal and works a lot um, with folks who've experienced disordered eating. She's living in a larger body um, and she wants there to be equity in treatment because she's experienced um, that sort of like, you're fine mentality um, as she goes through eating disorder treatment too. Um, So I I think that goes hand in hand with what you talked about with we as Americans strive for the smallest body possible. And if you're not in that body, people assume you're unhealthy and maybe don't need help with other things that are going on, whether that's binge eating disorder or whether that's restrictive eating disorders. Um, So I'm I'm curious, as you're sort of helping people living in larger bodies, if that's a shared lived experience, um, that they're not getting help with eating disorders too. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, it's really important to say you cannot tell anything about a person's relationship with food or health status based on looking at their body. You can only tell your own bias (laughs) and assumption. Okay. So a lot of times people who are in higher weight bodies are assumed to have a disordered relationship with food, or if they have an eating disorder, assumed it's binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. But it's actually the case that there are people at higher weights who have what we now call, I hope this will get changed someday, but we call it atypical anorexia. And what that means is that they meet all of the requirements for a diagnosis of anorexia, except one, you know, we usually picture somebody with anorexia is very, very thin, but they're not, they're higher weight. And yet their body is completely undernourished on the inside and they suffer from all of the um, same physical repercussions that somebody thinner would. If, if anybody out there is kind of curious about that, there's a book called Sick Enough by Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani that I highly recommend that really looks at um, eating disorders and what does it mean to be sick enough to deserve treatment. And so I think that's an awesome resource. And she's an awesome, she's a medical doctor who only treats eating disorders. She's in the Denver, Colorado area in case there's any listeners who would want to seek her out. Um, she's in, but, in, and I think she, We'll meet with people once and then work with telehealth. Although during the pandemic, she may do it all by telehealth. I'm not sure. So does that answer what your ambassador was talking about? Yes. And I I think I wanted to just validate that experience for her too. Um, Okay. So there's one question that started this whole journey um, for me and for We Got Goals. And that was a question that we as a team sort of started talking about together. We were talking about diets um, and we were listing them. And then someone asked the question, wait, is anything actually a lifestyle or is it all diets? Um, So I just want to ask it flat out. Is there a lifestyle (laughs) out there or is everything we view as lifestyle a diet? I know you don't mean this is a trick question. (laughs) It's not a trick question. It's the million dollar question. I'm going to do my best to deconstruct what you're asking. Okay. 
The only issue with the word, certain words get co-opted. So perhaps mm-hmm. lifestyle is one of them. So the only issue with the word lifestyle is that often people mean something for weight loss. So I'll go back to just repeat something I said earlier. If you're manipulating your food, if you're making choices around what to eat and calling it a lifestyle and the intention is weight loss, it's a, it's a diet, no matter what you call it. At the same time, I don't, I don't have a dictionary in front of me to look up the exact meaning of lifestyle, but we, I mean, we all have a lifestyle. We all have patterns. We all have ways we take care of our bodies that are important. It's important to take care of our bodies. So going to a doctor for an annual physical every year, I mean, that's part of my lifestyle, right? Um, somebody may choose to be vegetarian because of a philosophy that, you know, philosophically don't believe it's okay to eat meat. So we can call that a lifestyle. Um, but I've certainly seen people who call veganism or vegetarianism a lifestyle when their intent is weight loss versus those where they're philosophically committed because of their core beliefs. You know, same with religion, somebody who um, fasts because it's a Jewish holiday versus fasting because I'll lose weight. So our lifestyle is, is a compilation of all the things we do to create our lives, what kind of relationships we're in, how do we create a sense of belonging, how do we... Um, how do we take care of our bodies in terms of nourishing them with food, in terms of physical activity, in terms of mindfulness or meditation practices? And I guess what I'd say is when you think about your own lifestyle, it's like, does it suit me? Is you know, just like I, I always say attuned eating leads to attuned living. So just like with attuned eating, we think about making a match. I'm hungry, you know, what will satisfy me right now? Oh, you know, some um pasta with meatballs and a salad and a piece of bread that would feel just right in my body. We can think about that in our lives. What nourishes me? What satisfies me? And I love doing that with my clients. We start to use the eating as a metaphor. So as you figure out and to the extent you have access to those things, because again, just because we want something doesn't mean we can always accomplish it or achieve it. But when you start to think about what will really nourish me in my living, I think that's a way of developing a lifestyle right? It's just like with food, nourishing and satisfying and has nothing to do with diet culture and weight. I love that. I love it. I think this is a wonderful place to end. Is there anything we haven't talked about with your, with regards to your work or just what you want people to know about living a life that's kind of attuned with what nourishes your body? You know, we've covered so much today. Um, like I said, I do full day trainings. I can talk for days about this. <laughs> But I guess I want to say is that for those who are intrigued by this idea, that what I'm talking about in one way is very simple. Eat when you're hungry, stop. Eat what you're hungry for, stop when you're satisfied. Mm -hmm. But it's not easy because of all the patterns that develop over the years. And yet it's well worth the journey. I remember years ago when I used to do a group, somebody saying, I don't get why people aren't breaking your door down to do this. Because the freedom that comes from it is... Um, life-changing. So I hope that if it intrigues you, that you'll at least take a look at some of my resources. There's plenty of other resources out there um, and see, just start to see if you could imagine what would your life be like if you were free of disordered eating? 
I love that. That sounds nice. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Gina. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. This has been another episode of We Got Goals and a SweatLife.com production. Thanks to Judith Matz for lending us her expertise this episode. Thanks to Ryan Deffitt for editing. And thanks to you, dear listener, for being a part of this podcast deep dive. If you have any thoughts, feelings, and emotions that pop up after the episode, we want to hear from you. Send us a DM at a sweat life or shoot us an email at admin at a sweat life.com. <laughs>